Christmas shopping season. And I'm not sure how many of you are like me, um, <laughs> and you just don't like it at all, right? So I, I always feel like, okay, maybe this year will be different, uh, and then I'm going to do my Christmas shopping. I'll do it early. I'm going to do it in person. And as soon as I set foot into a mall, I just, I, my anxiety level goes through the roof. I'm like, I, I don't like this at all. And so I've been grateful for a trend in my family in which we have begun to share very specific Christmas lists. We want these things exactly in particular, and here's where you can find them online. And that kind of takes the, uh, the edge off the Christmas shopping, both in the giving and the receiving. And I like it, for one. But uh, you get a sense of how much we, as a society, tend to spend around Christmas time. In fact, I looked up a few stats. And if we look to our neighbors to the south, which I think reflect a lot of our habits, in 2021, the overall holiday spending in the U.S. reached $886.7 billion. $886.7 billion on holiday spending alone. And if you want a stat that's a little more close to home, in the same year, last year, the average holiday spending by Canadians was $1,420 per person. $1,400 per person. And I will be ready to admit that I was dragging that statistic down quite a bit, because that's not how much I thought I spent on the holidays last year. We spend a lot. And why does this matter? Why would I bother bringing it up? Well, I think it has everything to do with the visions that John received and recorded for us in Revelation 17 and 18, those exact visions in which we are going to spend some time this morning. And so while the connection might not seem at the forefront now, keep it in the back of your mind, and my hope and my trust is that this connection will be made clear as we learn together. So turn in your Bibles, your physical Bibles that you brought with you according to Pastor Earl's instructions from last week. As I sat in the back and very sheepishly opened my phone app, <laughs> but I appreciate it. We're going we're gonna to be in Revelation 17 and 18. You can, you can feel free to open there now. And again, I know we've prayed quite a bit, but I would like us to pray once more as we ask God's blessing on our time together. Let's pray. Gracious God, it is good. We, we've been able to be reminded of the joy that we receive when we fulfill our purpose in worshiping you. We've been reminded of the hope that we have in you that nothing else can threaten or strip away. And so joy and hope hopefully have filled our hearts. And God, I pray that we would bring these same God-given gifts of joy and hope into our learning time together, that your spirit would be our guide into all this truth, and that as we, again, go through a complex and difficult passage, that you would rest our hearts in the knowledge of, of what you have for us, and that we would be able to dig down deep enough to know how to live differently in light of your word. We pray this and ask this of you in your name. Amen. Amen. We are in Revelation 17 and 18. And I'm going to read for you Revelation 17, a bit of a longer passage. I'd encourage you to follow along if you have your Bible open. And if not, you can just listen to these words. It is important to see uh, the vision described in its fullness in order for us to unpack it. Here is what happens in Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, that being John, who received this vision. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels, and pearls, 
holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They may make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, this is quite the interesting vision that John sees. And almost more cryptic than the vision are the, are the explanations that we receive. This is a fairly unique passage in Revelation, one of those in which we're not only given the vision, but we are also supplied with some of the explanation. But as you read it, you might think, wow, that maybe complicates matters instead of clears things up. But we are going to learn from this together. The first thing that we recognize is that this vision takes place during the seven bowls of judgment. It is one of the angels of the seven bowls that is now ushering John into this vision and giving him the explanation of it. This serves as yet another reminder for us that the book of Revelation is not written in chronological order. We, we read the seven bowls in their entirety last week, and Pastor Earl did a great job in ushering us through an understanding of that passage. And now all of a sudden we see the next vision, but it's taking place during the seven bowls. Again, during this time period that is, is represented from the, from the uh, advent of Christ and his first coming, and then what we look ahead to and anticipate that future event of his second coming. It is now once again in this time frame that this will take place. And John is given this vision. So our always, as always, our attitude is, is to ask, what did John see next? Not necessarily what happened next. But this is what he saw after the completion of God's wrath and judgment depicted by the seven bowls. He now sees this vision of Babylon. And Babylon is painted by this picture of the great prostitute. Now, I have some friends here from Stonewall visiting this uh, weekend. And so last night we were playing games and having a good time. They said, so pastor, what are you, they didn't call me pastor. They said, so Andrew, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I'm saying, well, you came at the right time. I'm talking about the great prostitute <laughs> and the beast. So just jump right into Revelation with us, why don't you? And uh, 
that should be easy, and you can always look forward to learning from that. And if you're a younger listener this morning and you're not sure what a great prostitute symbolizes, go home and ask your mother, and she will be happy to describe it to you. What a weird picture to be painted. But there is this theme of sexual immorality, and the peak and the height of this immorality is symbolized by the great prostitute. But as we continue to unpack, you'll realize that, that John and, and Revelation and, and the vision that Jesus is giving to John actually doesn't center around sexual immorality in particular, but the sexual immorality serves as a symbol to a greater truth. That will hopefully become clear, especially as we learn from the other half of our passage in Revelation 18. So the kings and the nations are guilty of committing sexual immorality with the great prostitute. They are complicit with what is going on, something that is clearly wrong, something that is evil and despicable in God's sight. And the kings and the nations are participating with Babylon, the harlot, to this end. And now we see a description of the woman herself. And again, what does this symbolize? She is arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And so from everything that John sees with his eyes, this woman is arrayed in incredible beauty and power and authority. Purple is that color of royalty. And and she has this royal robe, and she is beautiful, and she's decked out in all of the most precious metals and precious jewels, and she is clearly a sight to behold, even to the the place where, where John would marvel at this vision, at her beauty. That is the one thing that he sees, but then he sees something else. And right alongside of this great and mesmerizing beauty, she is holding a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her immorality. So on one hand, you have something that is beautiful and tempting and alluring. But on the other hand, you have something that is gross and evil and despicable. Evil is not a word. And despicable in God's sight. I tell you what, church, you say enough words and sometimes something will come out like evable. And once again, I'm glad we're live streaming this so that the internet will know it forever and ever. One hand, she's beautiful. On the other hand, she's despicable. And what do we do with this? We know that appearances can be deceiving. What John is realizing as this vision is explained to him is that appearances are one thing, but the truth, the reality, the heart of the issue is that Babylon is gross. Yeah, it's tempting, and it looks to be wonderful, but it is disgusting. She's drinking getting drunk on the blood of the saints of Jesus Christ. That is the reality, no matter what the appearance may look like. And then her name is also depicted as being written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. This name being written on her person is contrasted with the name of Jesus. And next week, I'm excited because church, we only have a few more weeks and we're getting to the very, very end. And when Jesus comes again in Revelation 19, we see him depicted as this conquering, victorious rider on a white horse. And we see his name is written as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is faithful and true. And on his diadem around his head is written a name that is so spectacular it is known to no one else except for him. That's what we read in Revelation 19. But before we get there, we see that there is a different name written on the top of Babylon. That is the mother of prostitutes. But even more so, 
While this is contrasted with Babylon and with Jesus, there is a greater contrast here with Babylon, the great city, and the new Jerusalem, which is the holy city, in the chapters that we will read in the future. And as we go through it, you realize even the structure of how John records this vision is parallel between how he experiences this view of Babylon and how he experiences this view of the new Jerusalem. And so on one hand, we have Babylon, the mother of prostitutes, the harlot. And then on the other hand, we have the new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, pure in every way. And these two cities, depicted as women, are meant to be side by side to show that they could not be more different. One is impure and an abomination, and the other is perfectly pure, the bride of Christ. But the impure woman, the harlot, is seated on the beast. This is a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. And this explanation should draw us right back to Revelation 13. This is the same beast that we saw rise out of the the sea. That beast also had seven heads and ten horns, and he also was full of blasphemous names. It is the same beast that the woman is seated upon. And John, once again, reminds us of the counterfeit nature, nature of the beast. In Revelation 13, we talked about the beast and the false prophet being symbols of counterfeit power and counterfeit worship. They appear to be like true power and true worship, but it's counterfeit. They appear like the lamb, but they are not the lamb. They fall short. And I love the play on words that John uses here to describe the beast. And he once again draws this uh, parallel with the lamb, but something that falls quite short because the beast is called the one who was and is not and is to come which is clearly meant to be a backhanded slap compared to to the lamb who was and is and is coming. And the beast looks like it, but the beast is not. He is counterfeit. He's not true power, not truly worthy of worship. Now for John and the initial readers of this passage, the beast clearly represents Rome. Well, how do I know that? Because now we're starting to dig not only into the vision, but the explanation of the vision. And then the angel explains to John that the beast has seven heads, and these seven heads are seven mountains. And if you know anything about Roman mythology, Rome celebrated the fact that it was built on seven hills. They had an annual celebration for that exact reason. Seven hills, seven mountains, for everyone who was in the persecuted church at the time that this was written would have known that this means Rome. Rome is in clear view for those And if we are to to give Revelation its own voice, which has always been our goal here during this series, then we are to say, yes, this would be understood to be Rome. The beast was Rome. Then we get some other explanations that hmm, maybe are less than helpful at clearing things up. The seven heads are also seven kings. And then we have all of this language. Well, five of them have come, and one's not come yet. And then when he does come, he's going to stay a little while. And then then there's actually an eighth king, but that's the beast. And what does that mean? What are we to, is this some sort of code to crack? Well, I would say this. I would say that my encouragement is to not speculate too much. Again, going back all the way to the ground rules that we set up, sometimes there will be items and details and explanations in Revelation that we will not be sure of. And I believe this is one of those times. And it is very, very tempting to go in and say, okay, this must be casting to the future. And so, uh, which world leaders are the first five? Which is the, which is the Antichrist world leader that's to come, that's going to be riding on the beast? And I would say that if we approach Revelation that way, that's the one thing we can be sure is not desired or intended to be meant. 
It's not desired or intended to be meant. And if you want me to unpack a little bit more about what I think might be going on with those seven kings, and that would be an excellent question to ask in the sermon Q&A. But for now, we're going to say that speculating over much is not helpful for our understanding of the passage. So we're going to move on. Then there are the ten horns, which also represent ten kings. And there is a group of those who commit adultery or immorality with the harlot on the beast. They join the beast to make war against the lamb. This is a war that was envisioned first in bowl number six, and, 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 the, and the nations opposed to God were, were, were gathered to, to make war with him in that battle of Armageddon. It's now this final battle is again referred to in our passage, and it's going to be completed in our passage next week in Revelation 19. And what happens in Revelation 19 is we realize there is no battle. They are ready for war. They're, they're there in their ranks to oppose Christ. And he comes again, and everything is over just when Jesus shows up. That's all he needs to do to win. He just shows up, and it's done. It's over. It's complete. Jesus wins by showing up. But eventually, these kings who commit immorality with the woman and make war on Christ will eventually turn on the prostitute, and they will tear her apart and burn her with fire, meaning that evil destroys evil. And God works it all out according to his plan. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So even when things seem to be dire, even when the saints are persecuted and losing their lives, even when it looks like the church is losing the battle, and even when these forces of of evil turn on one another, God is always in control. We're reminded of Revelation 4 and 5. There is one seated on the throne. God is working out all things for his purposes. So what do we know about Babylon? What do we know about this woman, the mother of prostitutes? Well, Babylon has long been biblical code for any time there's a group of people who try to make their way without God. We don't need God. We can do it on our own. The very first time we we see this type of spirit enter into humankind is in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. And Babel is the root word for Babylon. You see, this Babylon-ness, the saying, I don't need God, we are good enough, we can make it on our own. It's been around since Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel was Babylon. And later on, when the people of God were being dragged into exile, it was Babylon who was Babylon. And now that the early church is is being put to death for their their devotion to Jesus Christ, Rome is Babylon. And the whole point of the vision that we get in Revelation 17 is not to know who Babylon is, but to be warned against Babylon-ness. That it has been present since Genesis 11 and in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and today we wake up in Babylon. It is about Babylon-ness. It was Rome for John in the early church, and we wake up in Babylon today. So what is the nature of Babylon-ness? What is, so, uh, uh, full, what is filling this cup full of abominations that are clearly against God's desire? We learn more in Revelation 18. We're going to read this together as well. In Revelation 18 now, we see that we have this picture or this vision of the woman, the harlot on the beast, And then now there's this call for the fall of Babylon, and it's almost like we are now entering into a funeral. And there are seven different speeches, funeral speeches about Babylon. And some people are rejoicing and some people are lamenting at her fall. But it is in these speeches that we learn what Babylon-ness is and how we should avoid it. Speech number one says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, 
She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So what is at the heart of Babylon-ness? What is symbolized by this depiction of sexual immorality? It is the temptation to go rich from power and luxurious living. Babylon was this system, this city, this nation, this economic powerhouse where a few people were growing richer and richer and their hope and their priority was in their luxury and their wealth. That is who Babylon represents. And if that is our definition of Babylon, then Babylon has never been more alive than today. So if I talk about Babylon being materialistic or focused on consumerism or luxury and wealth, and disposable income, does that not talk about our situation here in 2022? We are an incredibly materialistic society. Our whole economy is driven by consumerism. If that were to stop, our economy would fall apart in a few weeks. It would be gone. We all rely on this system in order to make our own livelihoods. We find ourselves in Babylon. Materialism, consumerism, and this idea that things, luxuries, will be our source of hope and our source of joy, not worship, as we talked about this morning. Don't take my word for it, though hopefully you find it fairly convincing. We're, we're inundated with different advertisements. During the men's event, we watched the Jets and Leafs game. We don't need to talk about how the game went, but the, the, it was a wonderful event. And we were just talking about how now in every NHL game, there's new dynamic advertisements that are superimposed along the boards when you watch TV. Advertisements are in front of us all the time. What do they say? Have this and you'll be happy. Kind of like this Volkswagen commercial that was shown at a Super Bowl a few years ago. I hate Mondays. Yeah, they're the worst. No worries, man. Everything will be all right. <laughs> yeah, man. Don't fret me, brother. Sticky bun comes soon. Yeah. Wicked coffee, Mr. Jim. Julia. Turn the frown the other way around. Hey, Dave, you're from Minnesota, right? Yes, I. The land of 10,000 lakes. The Gopher State. So in conclusion, things are pretty dismal. You know what this room needs? A smile. Who want to come with I? Traveling along, <laughs> there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. You guys are three minutes late. Don't be no cloud on a sunny day. Yeah, chill, Winston. Sir? Respect, bossman. <laughs> That's the power of German engineering. That's what I've been missing. A Volkswagen. I've had it all wrong. Or what about the source? You know, they just went right to it. They know we're in Babylon because they can advertise by just saying, they didn't say anything sneaky or subliminal or subconscious. They just have this slogan that says, I want that. I want that. Church, that is Babylon. Wealth, power, luxury. We live in Babylon, which is alarming because of the second speech. Listen to what the next angel says. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. 
lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like a measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. I can make it on my own. I don't need God. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, and death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And so if we find ourselves in Babylon, we should be alarmed because the call for the people of God is to come out of Babylon. She is doomed, and the angel is calling God's people to have no part in her sin and no part in the destruction, the consequences of her sin. And this is in line with things we read elsewhere. All through the ministry of Jesus, he said over and over again, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money, for you will hate one or serve one and despise the other. And so Jesus has warned us in his life and teaching, and Jesus is warning us again in Revelation 18 to come out of Babylon. And do we listen to those warnings? Or do we perhaps think in our own naivety or justification of our own lifestyle that we can have it both ways? We can serve both God and money. That can't be too big of a problem, can it? Well, Jesus spoke this over and over and over again. Heed the call today to come out of Babylon. For the people who are complicit with Babylon will not rejoice over her fall, but they will lament like the kings, picking up in their speech in verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, again, not literal sexual immorality, but they were complicit by living in luxury with Babylon, they will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. So, of course, if you do not heed the call to come out of Babylon, then at the end of all things, when when she is demolished and and torn down forever, this great city, then you you will also lament over that, just as the kings did. And what do we learn from the kings? They said that in one hour, her judgment has come. She was a great city. She was incredibly powerful, incredibly beautiful. How could something as amazing and and, and immense as that, how could all of it be lost in only one hour? And every time we encounter a number in Revelation, we're reminded this is a a symbol, not a statistic. This didn't happen in literally one hour. What, What John is being taught is that in the end, Babylon will become undone just like that. It appears unassailable. Rome appears to be invulnerable. But in the end... All of that power, that counterfeit power, is undone. In one hour, things changed and turned on their head. This is not the place to find your hope. In one hour, it was all gone. The merchants also lament, picking up in verse 11. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. No one's shopping. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, that's my personal weakness, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and and slaves. That is, human souls. So the merchants 
Weep. They say the fruit for which she longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. And the, and the merchants of these wares, who gained wealth from her, gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. The merchants also lament. When Babylon falls, no one shops for these luxury items anymore. They're lamenting because when no one shops, they can't make their wealth. And they were riding on the coattails of this Babylon system in which they could make themselves rich, not just by bringing luxury, but they made themselves rich at the expense of others. They were even peddling in human souls. You see, in Rome, they had this system, this intentional system of economic oppression. And so Rome, being the center of the, of the empire, would have all of these harsh tariffs and taxes from the outlying provinces, and they would take all that wealth, and that would keep them in servitude of the empire, and then they would hoard it for themselves. And the system of Babylon is not just luxury, it is luxury at the expense of others, even human souls. Now, we do not take part in slavery today. But are we still part of a system that our luxury and gain pushes other people down and keeps them in a type of servitude? Part of the reason we wake up in Babylon is because economic inequality is still very much so a global experience. Andrew Stanley from the International Monetary Fund gives these stats earlier in 2022. He says some 10% of the world's population owns 76% of the world's wealth. 10% owns 76%. The same 10% takes in 52% of all of the income. And just to put the cherry on top, that same 10% accounts for 48% of global emissions. We live in a world in which our wealth and luxury often comes at great cost of others. And church, I will tell you something without a shadow of a doubt. If you're seated here today and listening online, you are part of that 10%. You and I, this is us. We have all of this and so many people go without. This inequality perpetuates oppression. And I would argue that at its most basic level, it can be a same way as dealing with human souls. So if we are to come out of Babylon, what does this say not just about what we have, but about what we end up taking from others? The merchants are crying because they can no longer live by dealing in human souls. Then there's speech five, the sailors lament. They are in a very similar idea or sort of similar situation to the merchants. Um, the sailors and the shipmasters and the, and the seafaring men and all whose trade was on the sea stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of Babylon burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying aloud, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she had been laid waste. So the shipmasters and the sailors were like Ancient truckers, they were the ones who didn't buy or sell the goods, but they transported the goods. So when Babylon falls and there is no more luxury and no one is shopping, then there is nothing to ship. And they will also share in the lament of her fall. And then the tone changes at that sixth speech. Because God's people who have come out of Babylon experience her fall differently. Rejoice, in verse 20, rejoice over her. O heaven, 
and you saints and apostles and prophets, the people of God. For God has given judgment for you against her. This is your vindication. This is God's perfectly righteous and just vengeance. This is him uh, listening to the cries of the martyrs all the way back in the beginning part of Revelation and saying, I have heard your cry. I have done what you've asked me to do. Babylon, who is drinking the blood of your, or drinking the wine of your blood, will be put to rest. Because in speech seven, we see that Babylon will be destroyed and will never be rebuilt. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. Craftsmen of any craft will not be found in you. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of a lamp will shine in you no more and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all have been slain on earth. Babylon will be stripped down, will be destroyed, will be gone forever. This is part of God's promised judgment. All of those abhorrent things will be laid to rest. And so on that day, when Babylon is no more, will we find ourselves lamenting or rejoicing? Because I hope you are convinced that when we see Babylon defined as wealth, luxury, and power that is gained at the expense of others, that we know Babylon is alive and well today. And we know that our entire economy is driven by this consumerism, materialism, this luxury, and buying what we don't actually need. We know that we are also experiencing extreme economic disparity. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And so as I was studying this, I felt convicted. I said, how can I, how can I preach this? If we are all involved in some way, if, if this is just the world that we live in, how can we practically come out of Babylon? What can we actually do that's possible for us to live according to the warning of Revelation 17 and 18? And I think there's a wonderful companion passage. This is even possible. It's even possible. There's a wonderful companion passage. I'm going to bring in Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You can turn there. This is where we're going to end our time together today. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, as soon as I find it, And this is Timothy's, sorry, Paul's instructions to Timothy that he should give to the rich people in the church. And I think this gives us our roadmap of what it looks like to live out a life that comes out of Babylon. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, that includes all of us, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So how do we do this? How do we live this out? Four things that we can do. The first thing is to not be haughty which means don't be proud, don't be arrogant. In other words, be humble. Church, we need to fight against any notion, any temptation that, that this material wealth and luxury that we have somehow makes us a more valuable or important person. So it doesn't matter what car you drive. That's not the social status that matters in the kingdom of God. 
And it doesn't matter how big your house is. And this is not some type of reflection of, of a greater blessing of God or a stronger faith that you have in him. Do not be proud or arrogant. Be humble in the blessings that you have. How does this look in life? Well, I think this is a really weird uh, point of application to make, but I would encourage you to consider shopping for things secondhand. That's right. Go to the thrift store. This sermon point is brought to you by Steinbeck MCC, where it's nifty to be thrifty. My sermon points aren't actually for sale, uh, or at least not with any price point that the MCC could afford. But I thought about this. How do we pause this rampant consumerism and materialism in a way that also shows that we are not doing this for arrogance or pride. We don't have to have everything brand new. We don't have to have the the greatest of everything. And and I think I'm proud. I'm proud of the fact that that, that my wife goes out and and she'll go to the thrift store or she'll use a lot of stuff on the buy and sell and and we'll have hand-me-down clothes for our kids. And guess what we'll do? We'll pass those on to others. And this is one way to just slow down the rampant consumerism around us, and one way to ensure that we are not getting these things for the wrong reasons. Just one practical example of many possible ones, but be humble. Secondly, Paul teaches us to come out of Babylon by being hopeful in God alone. The whole warning of Revelation 17 and 18 was say, beware, this city Babylon looks like she is unstoppable, but in one hour, everything was gone. Where is your hope? Where do you trust for true power? Where do you place your true worship? Paul says the same thing. He says, do not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides you everything to enjoy. Babylon was undone in one hour. Be hopeful in God alone. Third, we are to come out of Babylon and be rich in a way that truly matters. Be rich in good works. Church, it does not matter how much money you have. That's not biblical wealth. Real wealth is found in how much good you can do for others and for the sake of Jesus. Be rich in good works. Don't feel guilty about your bank account. Don't feel ashamed about your bank account. Be focused on doing good to other people. Be rich in good works. What does that look like? Well, maybe this holiday season, you can see how many hours you spend shopping. And hold that up against how many hours you spend serving. According to Paul, that should be a very unbalanced equation. Be rich in good works. And lastly, fourthly, be generous. If you only listen to this part, if you only hear one thing from me this morning, it's these words. (laughs) You're like, you preached for 40 minutes and now you tell me I didn't have to listen until now? Be generous. See, wealth and money and luxury is not evil in and of itself. Paul actually said that, that God has given us these things to enjoy. It's a gift of God. But what we do with that gift matters. And when you are generous, it is this outward proof that you are content. It is this outward proof that you are following Christ. It is this outward proof that you are focused on the hope of his eternal kingdom. So don't worry about how much you have. Worry about how much you give away. Be generous to your friends and your family. Be generous to your church and to the missionaries. Be generous to the least of these in your community. Be generous, people. And if you live life excited about giving away what God has blessed you with, then you will live a life out of Babylon. So as the worship team comes up, we're going to sing one song of response. 
I want to remind us that according to John and to Paul, where do we end up when we follow the command of Christ to come out of Babylon? In Revelation 17, John says that those with the Lamb are called chosen and faithful. We will find out where we, went, where we end up in a few weeks' time. And according to Paul in 1 Timothy, when we live with humility and with hope and with good works and with generosity, we may take hold of that which is truly life. That is a promise worth clinging to. How we use our wealth matters. How we prioritize our wealth matters. How we give to the least of these matters. Amen. Thank you.